Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features soprano Tony Arnold. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. My name is Rosanna Moore. As always, I am your harping host. And my wonderful co-pilot today is the delightful, the wonderful, the amazing Adam Cordell. How many adjectives can I put in that introduction? Hello, Adam. How are you, my love? Hi, Rosie. I'm doing well. How are you? I am just dandy today. It is beautiful weather outside, which always makes me happy. So who is our guest today? Well, someone we're super excited about. I know I say that before a lot of episodes, but we're really, really excited to have the incredible and wonderful soprano Tony Arnold with us. She has been described as so many wonderful things, a bold and powerful interpreter, a luminary in the world of chamber music and art song, and is just making so many waves in the voice repertoire and small ensemble part of chamber music making. So without further ado, thank you so much and hello to the wonderful Tony Arnold. It's so nice to be here and thank you for inviting me to share a conversation with you today. So I want to actually start with a little bit of background and uh, specifically I am so enchanted by the fact that you know, we know you as a vocalist now, but you actually started your career as an orchestral conductor. And um, I, I just find that to be such an interesting and amazing aspect of your biography. I just wanted to start off by asking you, uh, because you, you made that transition in your early 30s, you know, what led you to make that kind of a transition after you had already started a, a solid career in a different direction? You know, I, I think part of the answer to that is that I've always done too many things. <laughs> and so I, I've always had a hard time deciding which direction I should be going in. And so I kind of um, have always hopped around a little bit. And in some ways it's a, it's a strength, in other ways it's a great failing uh, because um, it means that one spreads oneself quite thin. I've always felt in some ways like I've been playing catch up on everything my entire life, every discipline that I've been involved in, and most of them have been musical uh, in a way, but like I, I pursue interests for a while and then I get bored and hop to something else. And that was like my MO as a kid, as a little kid. And that doesn't wear so well as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> you actually kind of have to stay with things. So the fortunate aspect of it is that those two chosen professions are kind of all encompassing. Mm. And uh, 
because they inhabit the realm of the intellectual and the oral in some ways much more than the digital. It is an easier sell to be able to, to, to float uh, between something like conducting and singing. It's much harder to do that, for instance, between viola and flute. Mm -hmm. The digital technical load of learning instruments is uh, much heavier than uh, than even singing, which ha which does have a tremendous amount of technique uh, involved in that, but it can be learned later. Hmm. So in, in the current iteration of your career, do you find that you are still using a lot of the work that you did as a conductor? Oh, all the time. As you know, I also teach mm -hmm. when I'm engaging in chamber music, uh, chamber music coaching, when, in my work with composers. Right now, my work is partially um, running this opera writing seminar that happens at Peabody where I teach. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm using those skills all the time. You know, I think it kind of goes back to um, my childhood. If somebody asked me what I wanted to be, I would say I want to be a musician. Mm-hmm. They say, yes, but what do you want to be? You want to be a pianist? Do you want to be a, I want to be a musician. I was like, that mindset was always maximal. I resisted specializing. I started my undergraduate as a pianist and struggled mightily. I was a good musician. I was not a good pianist because I hadn't logged the hours mm. that were necessary to really learn the digital craft. But I had always sung, and what you need primarily to be able to sing is a good ear. And then everything else is a kind of muscle memory that can be learned in fits and starts and that kind of never leaves you. It doesn't have to be kept up in quite, this, in quite the same way. I mean, yes, there is such a thing as being out of shape as a singer, of course. Because we use our vocal instruments all the time, it's about harnessing the energies and the coordinations of communication, which we're already doing. And playing uh, an instrument is external. We are acting upon something else. But when you're singing, you are uh, uncovering the intuitive. So hopping back into your early career, I, you have received a number of incredible honors, including being a recipient of the Brandeis Creative Arts Award, and also you're a laureate of two competitions, the Gaudiamus International Competition, the um, Interpreters Award, which I am so sad that competition doesn't exist anymore. I know. But also the Louise D. Mc McMahon competition which also has disappeared oh really oh, no yes oh. actually i think the i think like the year or two after i i won that one it was gone oh goodness yeah. could you talk about how these competitions and how these honors have shaped your career and sort of the role of competitions you personally took from your experiences that i entered competitions at all was a complete surprise to me and, and all of those competitions i entered when i was older. I was 35 and too old to be doing competitions, essentially. So I found the ones that would take a 35 year old. I think the other competition that I did that, you know, I, I made a, a semifinal round of was the concert artist guild. This was right about the time when I come back into singing and, you know, maybe a couple of years afterwards, I, I had missed all of the young artists, uh, um, auditions for opera companies and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't really interested in that anyway. But when I saw the McMahon competition advertisement, what caught my eye is that that competition was for older artists. It was 25 and up. 
Hmm. That's so much better. Yes. There should be more of these. Yes. And it was a recital competition. And so for me, artistically, that was worth it. Um, it's not worth it to learn a bunch of areas that you don't care about anyway, or excerpts or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just like to learn something for a competition. No, but to learn a recital. Yes. And it's the same thing with the Gaudiamus. It's essentially, it was a recital competition. The, the way that that was conducted was um, very much also about the community of artists that it brought together. So that was a whole week you go, we went to Rotterdam, I was in Rotterdam at the time. I met so many people whom I am still in touch with today because there were a hundred different acts competing there. So it was a bunch of soloists and a bunch of chamber groups and they're all doing contemporary music. So they were all unbelievable musicians because nobody learns a 60 minute program of really ridiculously hard music just for fun. They do it because they love the endeavor. They love the art. They love the repertory. They love the intensity of the endeavor and they love the community. And it's a small community. And uh, so many of those people I am still in touch with today and they, and they keep going and are really inspiring, super formative because here was a, a, a cork international community that I immediately connected with that I hadn't known before. And uh, members of the jury also became trusted mentors over the years. That was one thing that really got the ball rolling for me. When I came back to singing, I was 30 and I, I was leaving the conducting world because quite frankly, I didn't want that kind of responsibility. I, I wanted to make music that felt personal to me and that wasn't about keeping institutions afloat or things like that. I, I, was, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be more selfish actually. You do a lot of chamber music and um, specifically you're a member of the International Contemporary Ensemble and you've collaborated with the Jack Quartet and the Orion Quartet and the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center and many, many more beyond that. But um, but we were just uh, wondering, did you actively seek a career that was chamber music focused or did you find yourself absorbed into this? I, I think... I went with where I was. I was not going to be singing in opera because I had missed the boat on all of that stuff as a young artist. And I wasn't particularly interested in it anyway. I had conducted opera and I knew that working as a singer in opera is a lot of waiting around for things to happen. When you're in the pit, it's chaos and you're in, you're in contact with everything that's going on all the time. And that's kind of great. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had missed all of that. And so chamber music was what I was doing as a, a, a singer of contemporary music. And I had so many contacts in the instrumental world as a conductor. So I was blindly groping around trying to figure out what a career would be. I relied heavily on my circle of friends, which was all instrumentalists. And so we just did chamber music together. My uh, husband at the time was in a string quartet and I would do like, there's this little Tarina piece, you know, we did that. It was just lovely. Just stuff like that. You know, I had friends who were composers. Hey, you want me to do your piece? And it was almost all chamber music because nobody was getting paid to do it at the time. So it was just friends, right? Mm -hmm. Just friends getting together and doing things. That kind of started to expand. And then, you know, you get invited to do one project and there's somebody who's there who you hit it off with and they end up being in a string quartet three years later. Really, it, it was all about relationships. It was, a, it was about the endeavor of community and making music together. 
And then with a, a, a couple of times where I had some opportunities and the preparation was there, preparation meets opportunity and, and then something can happen. This is something that a lot of a uh, lot of people who we've interviewed have said. It's the beautiful thing about chamber music is a lot of these things come out of friendship and come out of a want to work together. And this is such a more natural way of creating art. And I think if, if nothing else, it shows that your friendships that you make in college in your early career are just so important. That's what I tell my students all the time. You know, look around at the people that you are with. This is this is your community. All of those chamber music friends in my late 20s, they were all from graduate school. My master's degree in conducting at, at Northwestern. Those were all the people I made music with for the next 10 years. And who even after I left the Chicago area and I uh, went to teach in Buffalo, I would come back to Chicago to perform with all the time. Everyone you're in college with, look around. They will be in the same career as you for the next 50 years. For introverts out there, it's it's important to get out there and actually get to know people. Yeah. You, you can't stay under a rock. You do have to meet people. It do, only hurts for a short minute and then you'll be fine. <laughs> and for extroverts, listen sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the other side of collaboration instead of within an ensemble with composers, George Crumb seems to feature fairly prominently in your career, especially from your Grammy nomination for Ancient Voices of Children, a work I am still yet to play, and I really want to. Um, and obviously your work with the George Crumb Ensemble. Can you talk a little bit about the connection you have to his works? As I was uh, saying before, uh, Gary Amos gave me lifelong mentors from that jury, and one of whom is David Starobin, the guitarist and the founder of Bridge Records. David has had a, a long collaboration with George. Of course, they've recorded all of, you know, the I don't know, 18 volumes now of the, of the complete George Crumb edition on Bridge Records. And I was so fortunate that uh, a couple of years following Gaudiamas, he uh, invited me to do those recordings. And so it was very much uh, Gaudiamus that made that connection for me and that brought me into George Crumb's world. And I got to tour with him for the whole year of, it was even longer than that, of his um, 75th birthday. Oh my goodness. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, we, we toured all over the country. Uh, I don't, probably did 20 concerts or something like that. And it was so much fun. It was really, really amazing. So it was uh, me and George and David Sturban and uh, Robert Shannon, pianist. George is, you know, he's um, my parents who are no longer with us, but he's the age of my parents. He might be a year younger than my mother, I think is very much of that generation, but actually comes with a totally different perspective on life than my parents had. And I learned a lot about my parents' generation that I hadn't really known um, about the diversity of thought that there was that I hadn't known that there was before. And so that was, for me personally, very important. It helped me um, negotiate relationship with my mother, uh, especially, because um, my father died long ago. So that was actually really important for me. To, to hear George's music, um, I understood it a lot better when I visited Charleston, West Virginia with him. And I had never been to Charleston before, but 
around every bend. I mean, they have the hollers there. They really are hollers. And there's hill people that live there still, you know, and, and the whole landscape is kind of haunted at the, you know, in this, the Kanawha River that goes through, spelled Kanawha, but it's the Kanawha, <laughs> the Kanawha River that goes right through Charleston. And uh, right in the middle of it is the Dow Chemical Factory. And so, you know, but the city itself is, and, and everything's in a shadow because it's in this valley. When George just said, well, I just wrote what I heard, I started to understand more what he was hearing, being in that particular landscape and the, um, the juxtapositions, uh, the private and the public, the modern and the ancient, it really deepened my relationship with, with his music. Talking about all of these incredible people you've worked with and incredible chamber ensembles, I wondered if you um, could pick out, if you can't pick out one, a top three or something, some of your most interesting chamber experiences you've had so far. Well, I love working with string quartets. And part of the reason that I love working with string quartets is because usually they've been together for a mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. And so they have a way, like each string quartet has their own way. First of all, string playing is so detailed. It's so intricate. And the, the way that bows are used to convey a sound, I mean, the, it's just like string players can make more, a, a wider range of sound than anybody. And so how each group of string players explores that and how they explore it over a lifetime, to me, is really, really, really fascinating. And doing the same piece with different string quartets, really, really fascinating. But working with a string quartet that basically has been together for 30 years, that's really interesting. And so when I first worked with the Orion Quartet, they've, they have, they've had pretty much consistent membership at least for the last 15 years. I think they've only had like one change, maybe two. They don't talk in rehearsal. It's kind of, I mean, what'll happen is you're playing along, playing along, and then everybody will just kind of stop. <laughs> <laughs> and they just kind of sit there and they go, yeah, that wasn't very good. Okay, well, bar 15. And then they just get up and they start playing again, right? But, and then there will be a little bit of conversation, but there really is very little conversation. They'll pick points and they kind of, go back and they're they're exploring the sound together all the time they're paying attention all the time but there's kind of no need for there's not a need for a lot of words some very specific ones you know but not a lot i just kind of loved that i just loved bathing in that energy i learned so much from working with them and uh you know continue to it's just really it's it's a lot of fun Recently, I worked with the Schumann Quartet. Uh, they're a German uh, string quartet, and also um, siblings are in that quartet as well. And um, a totally different kind of style. But you know, it, it was it was very interesting working with them because we were doing the Berg Lyric Suite, and that's a piece that they do all the time, but they never do it with the singer. That has that repressed vocal line in it, which is. Mm -hmm not really supposed to be performed with it, but oftentimes it is. And so for Chamber Music Society, they wanted to do that. And they were so willing to rethink a piece 
that is part of their repertory. And they changed a lot of things, like a lot more things than I expect that season string quartets would do. It, that that was impressive to watch um, how they were able to kind of change those things on the on the fly and how also because I was singing something that was in their language, how they related to that and how they actually helped me so much with the German phrasing just through what they were doing with with the musical phrasing. Right. It, it was that was mm. awesome. I, I would say that that was a, um, a recent experience that I've had that was been very enlightening. Um, so to move toward uh, teaching and um, community engagement, uh, the one of the things that really struck me about your bio is that you were the first performer ever designated to serve as the Howard Hansen Distinguished Professor of Composition at Eastman. I guess the thing that I'm interested to know is is how you approach the experience of teaching composition from a performer's perspective or in light of what you were discussing earlier about kind of the global musician idea, if you, if you maybe don't even see things from the lens of performer or composer, but just as what does, what works and what yeah. doesn't. Along with the global musician thing. I mean, that was one of those things as a, a kid that I thought I was going to do a lot of was composing and I have at time to time. Um, I would not consider myself a composer. And I think that that is, a, definitely a discipline un, unto itself. It requires the amount of time and focus to do that kind of work um, is something I, I can fathom it, fathom it, but I cannot see myself actually being able to do that. It really does take a deep patience to be a, a composer, and I lack that patience. But in terms of the imaginative aspect of it. That's something that actually I think I'm very in touch with. And, and some of that is is the conducting training. My main conducting teacher was Viktor Yampolsky. His, his musical imagination in terms of characterization, in terms of how the quality of sound works with that characterization, in terms of how instruments work together gesturally in order to bring a piece to life. That is something that um, really inspired me to look very deeply into the construction, the inner construction of music in order to, to extract as much information as I could um, from that about how sound was made and how sound how sound mingles together to become something else. What is at the heart of composing is how do you harness sound to have it become more than itself? How do you bring different colors together to make something explode with harmonics? And and there's physics in that, right? And there's... Um, there's chemistry, there's, there, there's a biochemistry of that also, you know? And so, and so I think that all of the, the variety of experiences that I've had in sound making have made it possible for me to have something that, something to offer to a composer. Hmm. Because compositions don't live without performers. Unless you're a composer performer, then that's something different. 
or unless you're doing entirely electronic music, that's something different. But a composer, a composer's job is to make a score. And that mm -hmm. score must communicate something of the oral tradition in which that music grew up in. And if I can help mm -hmm. refine a composer's thinking in that way about how a performer lifts those icons off the page and turns it into something else and then combines that with the other body mind in the in the room who's doing the same thing off the same score you know if i can illuminate that process in some way then i think i've done the job that for instance eastman hired me to do that year and that was all because of the um the generosity and vision of David Liptock and Carlos Sanchez Gutierrez and Ricardo Zon Muldoon, right? Uh, people who I had worked mm -hmm. with um, in a variety of capacities before somehow thought it was a good idea <laughs> to bring me to do that. And uh, I, it was an amazing experience, but also um, has been one that I have sought to repeat in many other iterations and have been given some opportunities to do that. And I'm trying to kind of do something like that with my faculty position at Peabody as well. Um, to, mm -hmm. to also to bring the performers into the composer's world. Awesome. Well, so to follow up on that, I, I kind of want to ask a little bit. So I was really struck when I worked with you a few years ago at the way that you were able to tell me very specifically which harmonic, which finger on which string you wanted. <laughs> um, it was amazing to me because I so rarely work with non-string players who know that kind of detail. And um, one of the things that I was really interested to ask was how did you, like, what was the actual process that you used to develop that kind of deep knowledge of other instruments? Because it wasn't just my playing as a violist, but it was also the way that you were able to speak to the flutist about exactly how he was approaching the head joint, and you were able to speak with the guitarist about exactly how he was approaching his his um, right hand technique. You know, I, I'm wondering how did you build that? Here were the the benefits of spreading myself too thin as a kid. <laughs> so when I was a kid, I just any instrument I could get my hands on and could convince my parents to let me bring home, I would play. And most of those instruments were actually wind instruments. I just played everything that I could. I never had lessons on anything really other than the lessons that I would get like in part of the school program. Only instrument I had lessons on was piano. And maybe I took some guitar lessons at one point too, I think, just to kind of find my way around the instrument. And that, but that is a kind of working knowledge. It's like just from doing that, from putting your hands on instruments, you, you have a sense of it. You actually have an embodied sense of it, even if you weren't good at it. I was curious about how things worked in that way. And then I was around string players all the time. When I went into conducting, I studied with a string player, Victor Jampolsky, violinist. He studied with Oistrach. I mean, he wouldn't talk about all the things you had to know, but he, I mean, he did. He, he expected you to know them. He, he wasn't good at elucidating what all those things were, but you had to figure out what was going on with all of the string instruments if you were going to survive that particular kind of training. There's practical things that you can do. There's charts and things like that. Say, oh, fifth harmonic is here. Okay, you know. And that became more relevant also when I was starting to decipher contemporary scores that were actually asking for specific things like that. And so there's there's a lot of you know practical resources to go to for that kind of information. And then you know at certain points I would pick up my husband's violin and say, show me, show me how this works, so I have a sense of how it feels. 
But I think also I, I was a, as a conductor, part of what you're doing is being a mimic mm -hmm. and conducting itself comes from bow gestures. That, that is where that physical language comes from. Harp, nobody knows what's going on with. No, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing about harp that always, it took me a while to figure this out. And where I, where I learned this was in playing the Lou Harrison second symphony or third symphony. We did it in the, uh, in the symphony workers at Nuso mm -hmm. at Northwestern when I was there and I was playing the tack piano. There was, the, there's this one movement that has piano, celeste, a, a prepared piano. It's basically an upright piano that has tacks in the, um, in the hammers and harp and gesturally all of the keyboard players, we would be like mm, down and, but the harpists don't do that. It's when you see the gesture, it is after the note has been played. Everybody else, you see the gesture before the note has been played. And I was like, oh, and so I had to rewire everything. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, I mean that, that's, you know, it's a long way around. I, I, I'm, I'm full of too much information and I don't know how to say any of it suc succinctly because none of it adds up linear in a linear fashion. It's all, everything is vertical and layered on top of itself. All of that information is layered on top of itself. And that's what creates the, the gesture at a musical moment, or, you know, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon mm -hmm. layer of things. And you can only analyze that one thing at a time in linear fashion, but then you have to stack it up and hold it all in your brain at once. <laughs> And to me, that is enormously rewarding uh, and fun. And that's that's kind of, yeah. So you talk about uh, sort of loving this kind of thing and find it really, finding it really fun, which I think is wonderful. That's sort of the whole point of doing new music for me is you get to find all these new fun things. But I do know from both being a teacher and being in school forever, um, vocalists and instrumentalists tend to be scared off from contemporary music. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for teachers in particular about trying to break down those barriers for younger musicians so that they're not terrified when a piece of Berio appears on their stand, for example? You know, um, I had a great teacher, the my voice teacher who saved my life. If it weren't for Carmen Mehta, I would not be singing. She was a leader singer, basically. Mm -hmm. I brought her Berio Sequenza and she knew exactly what to do with it. She knew exactly what to do with it. She had never sung it herself. She never laid eyes on the score. She knew who Berio was, and I think probably, you know, had heard some of his music, but that didn't matter. To her, whatever music you wanted to sing, you had to embody. Mm. You had to figure out how to embody it. And that process of finding resonance was play. And it was harnessing and harvesting sounds that you had already made in your entire life. And it's for a singer, you can do this. Like every vocal sound that is available to be made, little kids have made. You have to go back and kind of harness the feeling in which that sound arose. And if you can do that and figure out how you breathed and what your relationship, how your body was free in those moments, then you can start to reproduce the sound. You can do the same thing as a string player or a wind player. Something that I, I notice is some extended techniques kind of sound like what beginner players do anyway when they're getting to know the instrument. It's of very course similar. they pick up the, the the instrument and they do all the things that you're not supposed to do. 
because of course, why wouldn't you do exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so there's a psychology when we learn the right way to play an instrument, because we learn that right way. We're seven, we're eight years old, and our lives are all about learning the rules. And you ever notice how there are kids that go around, like really little kids, like four-year-olds, they'll go around and just in their self-talk and they're like, no, no, it's this way, no. And they, you know, and they point at themselves and they say bad, you know, and they're, cause they're trying to figure out the rules. That's just developmental, yep. right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's just developmental. Right. But the thing is, is that that stays an imprint of that stays in the mind. And there's something, something in us that doesn't grow up to recognize that as being developmental, we think it's true. Hmm. And so we think that the rules of playing an instrument, something something terrible will happen. And this is just, it's not conscious, it's just deeply embedded psychologically. Something terrible will happen if we do it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And if you're carrying around the judgment of your formative years, you're always gonna approach an extended technique with tension. I think all of my students need to hear that, actually. I'm gonna send this to them and go, hey, <laughs> Just play. That's all you do. It's fun. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. So moving on to um, professional goals. And obviously everything has moved because or partially because 2020 is a dumpster fire of a mm. year. Um, but also just the music industry has changed so much in the past 20 years, but even in the last five to 10 years. Are you seeing any new trends in the professional goals of young musicians, given the particular instability and uncertainty associated with the current economic situation, in particular for opera houses and young artist programs? Uh, absolutely. There's lots of changes, of course. There's lots of changes. And, and um, you know, our dean at, at Peabody has con convened a, a think tank talking about, you know, 10 years after COVID. Is COVID some kind of an accelerator of trends that are already in motion, or is it just an interruption, or is it you know what does it represent in that way? But certainly there are trends um, that have been happening for a long time, and a lot of that revolves around economy. I mean, just just the economics of institutions in general. For a long time now, we've been seeing the um, emergence of far more small nimble ensembles than i think that we have seen in many 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 years if it you know it, it, in a certain way it's kind of like more a return to how things were 200 years ago yeah 300 years ago mm. before larger musical institutions became a normal thing so mm. you know we're functioning in a world that we think is like normal and actually it's like this is a big experiment giant institutional things on this scale because of industrialization and now digitization. We have this fantasy of scale. And it, I think it really is a fantasy because how music has always been disseminated has been body by body. It is an intensely local endeavor. It used to be that if you wanted music, you played it. So that's only been the last 75 years or so, maybe, maybe 100 years, that that's been different. And so that's also very new and that that in itself is actually constitutes probably the bigger crisis i would say and that, that so this has been going on a trend has been going on for a long time is that there are fewer and fewer fewer people playing music mm -hmm. but the people mm -hmm. who are playing music are doing it at a higher and higher and higher level all the time because we know what's possible mm -hmm. and as soon as one barrier is broken everybody's like oh yeah i can yeah. do that <laughs> 
oh yeah, I can do that. And so these you know kids are coming into conservatory training at least on a technical level higher than ever mm -hmm. before. Musicianship takes long takes longer to develop, and that's a a human personal thing. That's a personal development thing. But in that landscape, the amount of creative work that's going on now is more than ever. The question is, how are we going to? The the angst is, how am I going to make a living doing this? Yep. <laughs> To be honest with you, when I switched tracks, I was making a living as a conductor. I had very good jobs for a young conductor in a city like Chicago. And I left all of that and I took a day job for the first time in my life when I was 30 years old, working at a biotech firm. I was an office manager there and I took the job because it was four hours in the morning. And then I went home and I practiced every day of my own volition for the first time ever. I, I mean, like, yeah. really, yeah. that was the first time I made the focused effort. I'm going to learn a body of repertory for which there was no mechanism to go make money doing it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was important to separate the music making from the money making. And if those two things find their way back to each other again, that will be fine as long as I'm making the music that I want to be making and that the music making is not the vehicle for making the living. Mm -hmm. That separation for me personally was very, very, very important. Yeah. I think if everybody at least once examines that in their lives, it makes it a lot easier to make choices. Okay, I'm gonna take this gig because I need XYZ money and, and that's fine. But I don't have to be chasing after all of these other gigs of things that are gonna be soul sucking just to make a living. There are other ways to make money that are more um, emotionally neutral. And I, th I artists have always had to make these decisions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that it's the institutional fantasy that, that we all grew up in. Everybody who's listening to this podcast grew up in the institutional fantasy. You can make a, mm -hmm. a, a living playing in an orchestra, <laughs> right? But there was a time actually when you didn't. And so again, that is also a, a byproduct in a way of the institutional mm -hmm. fantasy to step off of the treadmill sometimes, even for a little while can provide some perspective. I, I, it's damn hard to say that knowing what time we are in right now, we're actually, I mean, this is at the moment, Nobody has a blueprint for where no. we are right now. No. I can't speak to that because we're all trying to figure out what that means. The one thing that I'm pretty sure about is that um, we are all starved for live music and that as soon as we can be together again, we are going to be together again. The, the enterprise itself of the music making and the art making is not going to be hindered by this in the long term. The economy for it is going to be vastly different. But the enterprise will continue undaunted. And the people who are seeking live music in their, in their lives are going to come out for it again. Yeah. It's going to look different, but it's not going away. We're adaptable creatures. Artists in general are adaptable creatures, but humans are also just... That's yeah. the whole reason we've been around for so long. When we stop adapting, it's not going to go so well for us. So, yeah. How do you approach relationship building with both ensembles and composers? Just like anything else, uh, be nice. 
you know? I am so happy that you've said this. It's, I am going to send this to every single student I've ever worked with because they look at me with the look in the eyes of, what do you mean be nice to everyone you meet? And it's not that they're not, but they seem so surprised that that's a, that's a directive that you should use. Right. Yeah. You have to know what that means. That, that doesn't mean that you're passive, mm. for instance, right? Take an active interest in people. Take an active interest in the music that you're playing. Ask a lot of questions. Ask questions. Composers love it when you ask questions. What do you mean by this? What do you, how did you think about this? Have alternatives in mind. Don't assume that what you're reading on the page is like some some kind of prescription and you just have to do those things. It's like, well, what about this? What about if I took a little time here? What about if I, th this isn't comfortable in this place. Okay, well, instead of being mad at the composer, okay, I can offer these alternatives. And you'll find that nine out of 10 composers are, they want that kind of feedback. And then they're looking for ways to make creative solutions because they, they want they want their performers also to be comfortable and to be jazzed about singing their pieces or playing mm -hmm. their pieces. So to take an an active part in the in the creative process. First of all, it's more fun. Uh, second of all, it builds goodwill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's much more fun thinking about possibilities pieces and so if you just kind of focus on that also you know with with people with players i had this experience recently where i did one performance of one piece and then half the ensemble stayed and then half the ensemble was replaced by other people because we went to another city and the mm. most difficult thing to do is to go into those next rehearsals as the people who have done the piece before and bring into the fold half of an ensemble who hasn't done the piece before and so you just came off of a great performance. Then there's people who are coming in, they're like, I don't know this piece. And they're already a little bit on the defensive in a way because they feel like they're behind. And then the players who have done the piece before have to be generous and patient and understand that they were in the dark just a week mm -hmm. ago also. There's a very difficult thing to go into a situation with a piece that you know and that nobody else does. You, you have to be generous. You have to understand the process that humans have to go through to incorporate ideas into their bodies and to be able to turn that around and, and produce sound, you know, generosity, generosity is just kind of everything. For a light last note, why screecher.com? <laughs> <laughs> so when I made this change, I was still conducting at the university of Chicago at the time, and there was a percussionist uh in that group he was an it guy right so he and mm. he and he played in this orchestra he was he registered my domain domain name <laughs> and you know he's like you want a website like sure yeah i guess well what do you want to call it i don't know well how about tonyarnold.com i said that's boring <laughs> well, what do you want to call it and then i just kind of came up well okay i'm gonna sing contemporary music so screecher he goes Screecher, Screecher.org, I said, sure, Screecher.org. And then two weeks later, he comes back, now you need Screecher.com. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hilarious. And then, you know, it was just, it was simply out of just absurdity. I love that you've kept it. That's, that's the best thing. <laughs>
Well, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's so distinct. I love it. I was going to say, contemporary musicians just have the best senses of humor in general. You know, you can't take it all too seriously, again, because it's like <laughs> some of the stuff that, that we do is mm -hmm. pretty crazy and mm -hmm. pretty caustic, some of it, and some of it incredibly beautiful and, and meaningful. And I don't know, it's so it's everything. To wrap everything up, this has been a tour de force of an interview today. I just have a big beaming smile on my face. You can probably hear it in my voice, but I wanted to say a huge, huge thank you to the one and only Screecher, Tony Arnold, for joining us today <laughs> for this wonderful interview. Thank you so much for all your time and all your wisdom that you've shared with us. It was a real pleasure. This was a lot of fun for me too. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChamberCast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore, and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Eric Moe and performed by Tony Arnold. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.